Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast. I am your host, Isabella Gutierrez, and today we're going to continue reading The Scarlet Letter, Chapter 12, The Minister's Virgil. Now, without further ado, happy listening! Walking in the shadow of a dream, as it were, and perhaps actually under the influence of a species of somnambulism, Mr. Dimsdale reached the spot where, now so long since, Hester Prine had lived through her first hours of public ignominy. The same platform or scaffold, black and weather-stained with the storm or sunshine of seven long years, and foot-worn too with the tread of many culprits who had since ascended it, remained standing beneath the balcony of the meeting-house. The minister went up the steps. It was an obscure night of early May. The unvaried pall cloud muffled the whole expanse of the sky from zenith to the horizon. If the same multitude which had stood as eyewitnesses while Hester Prine sustained her punishment could now have been summoned forth, they would have discerned no face above the platform, nor hardly the outline of a human shape in the dark gray of midnight. But the town was all asleep. There was no peril of discovery. The minister might stand there, if it so pleased him, until morning, should redden in the east without other risk than that the dank and chill night air would creep into his frame and stiffen his joints with reuthanism and clog his throat with carafe and cough thereby defrauding the expectant audience of tomorrow's prayer and sermon. No eye could see him, save that ever-wakeful one which had seen him in his closest wheeling the bloody scourge. Why, then, had he come hither? Was it but the mockery of penitence? A mockery indeed, but in which his soul trifled itself." A mockery at which angels blushed and wept, while friends re- fiends rejoiced with jeering laughter. He had been driven hither by the impulse of that remorse which dodged him everywhere, and whose own sister and closely linked companion was that cowardice which invariably drew him back with her tremulous, tremulous grip. Just when the other impulse had hurried him to the verge of a disclosure. Poor, miserable man! What right had infirmity like his to burden itself with crime? Crime is for the iron-nerved, who have have their choice either to endure it or, if pressed too hard, to exert their fierce and savage strength for a good purpose and fling it off at once. This feeble and most sensitive of spirits could do neither, yet continually did one thing or another, which intertwined in the same inextricable knot the agony of heaven-defying guilt and vain repentance. And thus, while standing on the scaffold in this vain show of expiation, Mr. Dimsdale was overcome with the great or horror of mind, as if the universe were gazing at the scarlet token on his naked breast, right over his heart. On that spot, in very truth, there was, and had there long been, a gnawing and poisonous tooth of bodily pain, 
Without any effort of his will or power to restrain himself, he shrieked aloud, an outcry that went pealing through the night and was beaten back from one house to another and reverberated from the hills in the background as if a company of devils detecting so much misery and terror in it had made a plaything of the sound and were bandying it to and fro. It is done, muttered the minister, covering his face with his hands. The whole town will awake and hurry forth and find me here. But it was not so. The shriek had perhaps sounded with a far greater power to his own startled ears than it actually possessed. The town did not wake, or, if it did, the drowsy slumbers mistook the cry either for something frightful in the dream or for the noise of witches, whose voices that at that period were often heard to pass over the settlements or lonely cottages as they rode with Satan through the air. The clergyman, therefore, hearing no symptoms of disturbance, uncovered his eyes and looked about him. At one of the chamber windows, the Governor Bellingham's mansion, which stood at some distance on line of another street, he beheld the appearance of the old magistrate himself with a lamp in his hand, a white nightcap on his head, and a long white gown enveloping his figure. He looked like a ghost, evoked unseasonably from the grave. The cry had evidently startled him. At another window of the same house, moreover, appeared the old Mistress Hibbins, the governor's sister, also with a lamp, which even thus far off revealed the expression of her sour and discontented face. She thrust forth her head from the lattice and looked anxiously upward. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, the, this venerable witch lady had heard Mr. Dimsdale outcry and interpreted with its multitude echoes and re reverberations as a clamor of the fiends and night hags with whom she was well known to make excursions into the forest. Detecting the gleam of Governor Bellingham's lamp, the old lady quickly extinguished her own and vanished. Possibly, she went up among the clouds. The minister saw nothing further than her motions. The magistrate, after a wary observation of the darkness, into which nevertheless he could see but little further than he might to a millstone, retired from the window. The minister grew comparatively calm. His eyes, however, were soon greeted by a little glimmering light, which, at first a long way off, was approaching up the street. It threw a gleam of recognition here a post and there a garden fence, and here a latticed window pane, and there a pump with its full trough of water, and here, again, an arched door of oak with an iron knocker, and a rough log for doorstep. The Reverend Mr. Dimsdale noted all these minute particulars, even while firmly convinced that the doom of his existence was stealing onward, in the footsteps which he now heard, and that the gleam of the lantern would fall upon him in a few minutes more, and revealed his long-hidden secret. As the night drew nearer, he beheld within its illuminated circle his brother clergyman, or so to speak more accurately, his professional father, as well as highly valued friend, the Reverend Mr. Wilson, who, as Mr. Dimsdale now conjectured, had been praying at the bedside of some dying man. And so he had. The good old minister came freshly from the death chamber of Governor Winthrop, 
who had passed from earth to heaven within that very hour, and now surrounded like a saint-like personages of the old times, with a radiant halo that glorified him amid his gloomy night of sin, as it the departed governor had left him an inheritance of his glory, or as if he had caught upon himself the distant shrine of a celestial city, which looking thitherward to see the triumphal pilgrim pass within its gates. Now, in short, good father Wilson was moving homeward, aiding his footsteps with a lighted lantern. The glimmer of his luminary suggested the above conceits to Mr. Dimsdale, who smiled, nay, almost laughed at him, and then wondered if he were going mad. As the Reverend Mr. Wilson passed beside the scaffold, closely muffling his Geneva cloak of about him with one arm and holding the lantern before his breast with the other the minister could hardly restrain himself from speaking ah good evening to you venerable father wilson come up hither i pray you and pass a pleasant hour with me good heavens had mr dimsdale actually spoken for one instant he believed that these words had passed his lips but they were uttered only within his imagination the venerable father wilson continued to step slowly onward looking carefully at the muddy pathway before his feet and never once turning his head towards the guilty platform. When the light was glimmering lantern had faded away, the minister discovered, by the faintness which came over him, that the last few moments had been crisis of terrible anxiety, although his mind had made an involuntary effort to relieve itself by a kind and lurid playfulness. Shortly afterwards, like the grisly sense of the humorous again stole in among the solemn phantoms of his thought, he felt his limbs growing stiff with an unaccustomed chillness from the night, and doubted whether he should be able to depend, descend the steps of the scaffold. Morning would break and find him there. The neighborhood would begin to rouse itself. The earliest riser coming forth from the dim twilight would perceive a vaguely defined figure aloft the place of shame, and half crazed betwixt alarm and curiosity would go, knocking from door to door, summoning all the people to behold the ghost, as he needs must think it of some defunct transgressor. A dusky tumult would flap its wings from one house to another. Then, the morning light still waxing stronger, old patriarchs would rise up in the great haste, each in his flannel gown and matrimony dames, without pausing to put off their night gear. The whole tribe of decorous personages, who would never heretofore been seen a single hair with their heads awry, would start into public view with the disorder of a nightmare in their aspects. Old Governor Bellingham would come grimly forth with his King James rough fastened askew and Mistress Hibbins with some twigs of the forest clinging to her skirts and looking sore than ever as having hardly got a wink of sleep after her night ride. The good Father Wilson, too, after spending half of the night at a deathbed and liking ill to be disturbed thus early out of his dreams about the glorified saints. Hither, likewise, would come the elders and deacons of Mr. Dimsdale's church and the young virgins who so idolized their minister and had made a shrine for him with their white blossoms, with which now, by by the by, in their hurry and confusion, they would scantly give them 
given themselves time to cover with their handkerchiefs. All people in the world would come stumbling to their thresholds and turning up their amazed and horror-stricken visages around the scaffold. Whom would they discern there with the red eastern light upon his brow? Whom but the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, half frozen to death, overwhelmed with shame, and standing where Hester Prine had stood? Carried away by the grotesque horror of this picture, the minister, unawares and to his own infinite alarm, burst into a great peal of laughter. It was immediately responded to by a light, airy, childish laugh in which a thrill of the heart, but he knew not whether to exquisite pain or pleasure as acute. He recognized the tones of Little Pearl. Pearl! Little Pearl! he cried after a moment's pause, then suppressing his voice. Hester! Hester Prine! Are you there? Yes, it is Hester Prine, she replied in a tone of surprise, and the minister heard her footsteps approaching from the sidewalk along which she had been passing. It is I and my little pearl. Whence come you, Hester asked the minister. What sent you hither? I have been watching at a deathbed, answered Hester Prine, at Governor Winthrop's deathbed, and have taken his measure for a robe, and... Am now going homeward to my dwelling. Come up hither, Hester, thou and little Pearl, said the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale. Ye have both been here before, but I was not with you. Come up hither once again, and we will stand all three together. She slightly ascended the steps and stood on the platform, holding little Pearl by hand. The minister felt for the child's other hand and took it. The moment that he did so, there came what seemed a tumultuous rush of new life other than his own pouring like a torrent into his heart and hurrying through all his veins as if mother and child were communicating their vital warmth to his half torpid system the three formed an electric chain minister whispered little pearl what wouldst thou say child asked mr dimsdale wilt thou stand here with mother and me to-morrow noontide inquired pearl Nay, not so, my little pearl, answered the minister, for with the new energy of the moment, all of the dread of public exposure that had so long been an anguish of his life had returned upon him, and he was already trembling at the conjunction in which, with a strange joy nevertheless, he now found himself. Not so, my child, I shall indeed stand with thy mother and thee one other day, but not to-morrow. Pearl laughed and attempted to pull away her hand, but the minister held it fast. A moment longer, my child, said he, but wilt thou promise, asked Pearl, to take my hand and mother's hand to-morrow noontide? Not then, Pearl, said the minister, but another time. And what other time, persisted the child? At the great judgment day, whispered the minister, and strangely enough, the sense that he was a professional teacher of the truth impelled him to answer the child so. Then and there, before the judgment seat, thy mother and thou and I must stand together. But the daylight of this world shall not see our meeting. Pearl laughed again. But before Mr. Dimsdale had done speaking, a light gleamed far and wide over the muffled sky. It was doubtless caused by one of those meteors, which the night watcher may so often observe, burning out into waste in the vacant regions of the atmosphere so powerful with its radiance that it thoroughly illuminated the dense medium of cloud betwixt the sky and earth. 
The great hall brightened like the dome of an immense lamp. It showed the familiar scene of the street with the distinctness of midday, but also with the awfulness that is imparted to familiar objects with an unaccustomed light. The wooden houses, with their jutting stories and quaint gabbled peaks, the doorsteps and thresholds, with the early grass springing up about them, the garden plots, black with flourish, freshly turned earth, and wheel track, little worn, and even with the marketplace margined with green on either side, all were visible, but with a singularity of aspect that seemed to give another moral interpretation to the things of which. Of this world than they had ever done before. And there stood the minister with his hand over his heart, and Hester Prime, with the embroidered leather glimmering on her bosom, and little Pearl, herself a symbol and connecting link between those two. They stood in noon of that strange and solemn splendor, as it were the light that is to reveal all secrets, and the daybreak that shall unite all those who belong to one another. There is witchcraft in Laurel Pearl's eyes, and her face, as she glanced upward at the minister, wore that naughty smile, which made its expression frequently so elfish. She withdrew her hand from Mr. Dimsdale's and pointed across the street, but he clasped both his hands over his breast and cast his eyes towards the zenith. Nothing was more common in those days than to interpret all meteoric appearances and to other natural phenomena that occurred with less regularity than the rise and set of the sun and moon as so many revelations from the supernatural source. Thus, a blazing spear, a sword of flame, a bow or sheaf of arrows, being in the midnight sky, prefigured Indian warfare. Pestilence was known to have been forbidden boded by a shower of crimson light. We doubt whether any marked event, for good or evil, be ever befell New England, from its settlement down to revolutionary times, of which the inhabitants had not been previously warned by some spectacle of this nature. Not seldom it had been seen by multitudes. Oftener, however, it is credibility rested on the faith of some lonely eyewitness who beheld the wander through the colored magnifying and distorting medium of his imagination and shaped it more distinctly than his afterthought it was indeed a majestic idea that the destiny of nations should be revealed in these awful hieroglyphics on the cope of heaven a scroll so wide might not be deemed too expansive for the providence to write a people's doom upon. The belief was a favorite one with our forefathers, as betokening that their infant commonwealth was under a celestial guardianship of particular intimacy and strictness. But what sh shall we say when an individual discovers a revelation addressed to himself alone on that same vast sheet of record? In such case, it could only be the symptom of a highly disordered mental state when a man, rendered morbidly self-contemplative by long, intense, and secret pain, had extended his egotism over the whole expanse of nature until the firmament itself should appear no more than a fitting page for his soul's history and fate.
We impute it, therefore, solely to the disease of his own eye and heart, that the minister, looking upward to the zenith, beheld there an appearance of an immense leather, the leather A, marked out in lines of dull red light, not but the meteor may have shown itself at that point, burning duskily through a veiled cloud, but with no such shape as his guilty imagination gave it, or at least with so little definiteness that another's guilt might have been another symbol in it. There was a singular circumstance that characterized Mr. Dimsdale's psychological state at this moment. All the time that he gazed upward to the zenith, he was nevertheless perfectly aware that little Pearl was pointing her finger towards old Roger Chillingsworth, who stood at no great distance from the scaffold. The minister appeared to see him with the same glance that discerned the miraculous leather. To his features, all to all other objects, the meteoric light imparted a new expression. Or it might well be that the physician was not careful then, as all other times, to hide the malevolence with which he looked upon his victim. Certainly, if the meteor kindled up the sky and discovered the earth with the awfulness that admonished Hester Prine and the clergyman of the Day of Judgment, then might Roger Chillingsworth have passed with them for the arch-fiend, standing there with a smile and scowl to claim his own. So vivid was the expression, or so intense the minister's perception of it, that it seemed still to remain painted on the darkness, after the meteor vanished, with an effect as if the street and all its things else were at once annihilated. Who is that man, Hester? gasped Mr. Dimsdale, overcome with terror. I shiver at him. Dost thou know the man? I hate him, Hester. Hester remembered her oath and was silent. I tell thee, my soul shiver, shivers at him, muttered the minister again. Who is he? Who is he? Canst thou do nothing for me? I have a nameless horror of the man. Minister, said little Pearl, I can tell thee who he is. Quickly then, child, said the minister, bending his ear close to her lips. Quickly, and as low as thou canst whisper. Little Pearl mumbled something into his ear that sounded indeed like human language, but was only such gibberish as children may be heard amusing themselves with by the hour together. At all events, it involved any secret information in regard to old Roger Chillingsworth. It was in a tongue unknown to erudite clergymen, and did but increase the bewilderment of his mind. The elfish child laughed aloud. "'Dost thou mock me now?' said the minister. "'Thou wast not bold.' That was not true, answered the child. Thou wouldst not promise to take my hand and mother's hand tomorrow noontide. Worthy sir, answered the physician, who had now advanced to the foot of the platform. Pious Master Dimsdale, can this be you? Well, well, indeed. We men of study whose heads are in our books have need to be straightly looked after. We dream in our waking moments and walk in our sleep. Come, good sir, and my dear friend, I pray you, let me lead you home. How knewest thou that I was here? asked the minister fearfully. Verily, and in good faith, answered Roger Chillingsworth, I knew nothing of the matter. I had spent the better part of the night at bedside of the worshipful, worshipful Governor Winthrop, doing what my poor skill might have to ease. He's going home to a better world. I... 
likewise, was on my way homeward, when the strange light shone out. Come with me, I beseech you, reverend sir, else you will be poorly able to do Sabbath duty tomorrow. Aha! I see now. How they trouble the brain. These books, these books. You should study less, good sir, and take a little pastime, or these night whimsies will grow upon you. I will go home with you, said Mr. Dimsdale, with a chill dependency, like one awakening, all nevertheless from an ugly dream, he yielded himself to the physician and was led away. The next day, however, being the sab- Sabbath, he preached a discourse which he had held to be richest and more most powerful and the most replete with heavenly influences that had ever proceeded from his lips. Souls, it was said, more souls than one were brought to the truth by the eff- efficacy of that sermon and bowed within themselves to cherish the holy gratitude towards Mr. Dimsdale throughout the long hereafter. But as he came down the pulpit steps, the gray-bearded sexton met him, holding up a black glove, with the minister recognized as his own. It was found, said the sexton, this morning on the scaffold, where evil doers are set up in public shame. Satan dropped it there, I take it, intending scurrilous jest against your reverence. But, indeed, he was blind and foolish, as he had ever and always is. A pure hand needs no glove to cover it. Thank you, my good friend, said the minister gravely, but startled at heart, for so confused at his remembrance that he had almost brought himself to look at the events of the past night as visionary. Yes, it seems to be my glove indeed. And since Satan sought fit to steal it, your reverence must needs handle him without gloves henceforward, remarked the old Saxon grimly smiling. But did your reverence hear of the potent that was seen last night? A great red leather in the sky, the letter A, which we interpret to stand for angel. For as our own good governor Winthrop was made an angel this past night, and was doubtless held fit that there should be some notice thereof. No, answered the minister, I had not heard of it. And that was chapter 12. And you know what? I'm I'm not going to even call it a prediction anymore. It's confirmed. It is confirmed. Because in this chapter, the minister or Mr. Dimsdale or Arthur, or however we want to call him, he, in the middle of the night, well, yeah, in the middle of the night, he goes up to the platform where Hester was publicly humiliated for three hours and he stands there as his own punishment and it happens it so happens that um this uh governor Winthrop I think I'm saying his name right Winthrop he he died right yeah he died so uh Hester because of her um embroidery and you know suing skills sewing sewing skills not suing can you imagine if you could sue someone she'd sue so many people oh i think so i don't know anyways because of her sewing skills she was asked to you know take his measurements because he he is um a very respected respected because he's dead now 
a very respected man, and of course he needs to look great for his own funeral, right? So as um, Mr. Dimsdale is standing there, he he hears Pearl laugh, and he calls them to him, and he says, "Stand here with me because you you two stood together already, but I wasn't here with you." That for me, is 100% confirmation. Another thing that confirms this is that it is revealed to us that he has marked the scarlet leather, like the A, on his, um, like, on his chest, like, right above his heart, okay? So those two things are already confirmation that Arthur Dimsdale is Little Pearl's father, okay and then it goes on to like you know uh some imagery and symbolism because it there's a scene where this i hope i can find it i'm gonna try finding it but i'm gonna be describing there's a scene where there where um the arthur is uh describing that there they are standing right uh um Hester with her scarlet leather, the minister with his um, scarlet leather on his chest, and little Pearl that we have already established that is the symbol. She embodies this scarlet leather. I can't find it. Uh, But also, the sense that the minister feels, it's almost like a rebirth. Like he... Yeah, like a rebirth because he feels that he's when he held um, Pearl's hand and was standing next to Hester, it was as if he was living a life that is not his. And that life obviously is being part of this family, the three of them. But of course, he is a pastor and he's not supposed to do that. So that life that he felt reborn into is not actually his. But when he held a uh, little pearl's hand, he felt like he was being reborn. Like his his heart wants this because he could have easily felt like remorse or disgust when holding little pearl's hand. But I I'd get mad if he did because little pearl's amazing. Anyways, um, but the fact that he felt reborn and refreshed and joy at that moment where he held Pearl's hand, even though she is the product of something that is seen as shameful at the time, it just really shows that the pain that he's feeling is not because he committed the act, but because he was not there for them. Because he's asking them to come up on the platform and stand there with him because he wasn't there the first time, but now he is going to be there. So, I think that really hurt my heart, okay? I think that was so sweet. And Mr. Dimsdale, or Arthur, uh, he's been going through a lot, right? But then, everything just goes south because it is also revealed that freaking Roger Chillingsworth is there at the step of the platform and he looks evil. He is evil. We already established that he kind of like embodies 
Satan himself. He's just evil. And he knows what's up. Because a few chapters, I think it was two chapters ago. Well, yeah, a few chapters ago, he 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 was being really creepy and sneaking around. And he saw that Mr. Dimsey was sleeping. And he kind of just moved, like opens his shirt a bit and then the scarlet leather that mr dimsdale engraved on himself is there and he's just you know making like a little like hallelujah dance type of thing he looked really evil so mr um no not mr roger chillingsworth knows what is up and it's and he's acting like he doesn't know but it's kind the the analogy that they use is like um prey and predator or victim and um something else but that's the analogy they use when describing like specific scenes between chillingsworth and dimsdale and i do you know that i hope you guys have seen lion king and do you know that small little scene where scar is playing with his food like the little mouse thing instead of just eating it right away he's taunting it he's playing around with it he's enjoying seeing the little mouse be frightened and suffer and try to run away but being unable to that is what i'm thinking about every time they describe scenes like that between roger chillingsworth and mr dimsdale because chillingsworth he knows what's up he already saw the the scarlet leather on dimsdale's chest and now he finds that he's standing next to hester holding little pearl's hand his heart on his um his other hand on his heart standing on the platform where hester prine stood seven years ago he knows what's up and his face says it all but he's acting like oh uh you're studying too much you're sleepwalking i think that's like so stupid i was so confused when like he started saying that he's just making up stuff and since mr dimsdale is like such a sensible and he was startled and he's frightened and he's nervous like he takes it he takes it he's like yeah yeah let's 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 just go home and his nervous character is seen further when they when this six uh six man yeah the six man sex what's the term what's the term i'm sorry i'm looking for it <laughs> Uh, uh, da, 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 da. Where is it? The sexton, six man. Okay, the sexton finds um, Mr. Dimsdale glove on the um platform thing, and Mr. Dimsdale, like although he looks calm outside, he's having a panic attack inside. So he's a very soft and gentle man. So obviously, when Roger Chillingsworth was saying like, "Oh, you're studying too much. You're sleepwalking. You need to do like a sermon tomorrow. Like you should, you should probably go to bed. Come with me, buddy." He he took it because he was he was in a daze, and especially after seeing that um, giant uh, letter A. And it's very interesting to see, like, the, how, like, the interpretation of that letter A is, like, between different people. Because for Arthur Dimsdale, and for me, personally, 
when the author was describing um, the vision of that giant leather A, I was thinking of the leather, what what the leather A symbolizes in Hester's um, embroidment, which is adultery, right? It's a crime. But then the sexton, he's saying like, oh, uh, did you hear that there was like a little sighting of the leather A or something? And he says, um, we, which we interpret was to stand for angel because Governor Winthrop like died and he's an angel now, right? So that contrast is very different because obviously Mr. Dimsdale's mental state is deteriorating. He's not okay. So obviously that um, vision he saw stands for like evilness and he he's frightened he's nervous he's startled he's like quivering all over he's he's like a little do you know like do you know like those those like weird uh wavy things that they put outside of like some that they sometimes put outside of uh like 7-elevens and um uh, gasoline stations, you know, like those, those guys, he's basically that, but he's not smiling, (laughs) and then the sexton, like, his mental state, he's fine, he's good, he's, you know, living his life, and he's like, oh, that must be sent from the heavens, so it was also nice to see that contrast, but other than that, um, I don't have much to say, this whole chapter was just, like, a big, fat, confirmation for me and hopefully it was for you too because hopefully we're on the same page remember we're a team and that is it i'll see you next time